Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is the recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged as you listen to this. Enjoy. Firstly, who likes camping? Yeah, hands up. We'll do the who hates camping kind of hands up in a second. So if you love camping, hands up first. Take a quick look around. These are the people to invite on your camping trips. Those of you who hate camping, hands up in the air. Those of you think the idea that we are living in the 21st century when we live under the blessings of electricity and indoor plumbing, the idea that you would live in a piece of fabric in a field is insanity. Maybe that's a little bit far, but okay. We're about, uh, we're about to enter the, kind of the, the final phase of the book of Exodus. Um, and, and really, you can split Exodus up. I said before, you can split Exodus into two parts. There's the bit in Egypt and the bit out of Egypt. Well, technically, you can divide it into three. There's the bit in Egypt, there's the bit out of Egypt, and there's the bit that we're going to cover this morning, which is the tabernacle. And within the, uh, the story, uh, the narrative around the tabernacle, there's an awful lot of information. It seems that God loves camping, and God is very specific about what he does when he goes camping. Those of you who like glamping, uh, maybe there's some kind of uh, identification here with God's approach to camping, because when God goes camping, there's a lot of gold. I don't think you get more glamorous than that. Uh, Last time I went camping, I woke up in the middle of the night with water streaming through the ceiling. And um, do when that happens, when you're camping, because... What I found out is there's very little you can do. Um, You just get wet. You can kind of move things around so that you're not sleeping in a puddle. You can put out a couple of saucepans to catch the worst of it. Uh, But you can't waterproof your tent in the rain. Uh, You can't just, well, I was tempted to get in the car and just go home, but I didn't want to be, you know, so so easily defeated. Uh, But generally speaking, you sit and you wait there until morning, and then you make the best of a soggy situation. But that's not the worst. The time before that, when I went camping. That was the last camping trip that I had. The camping trip before that, I woke up at three in the morning to hear serious kind of wind blowing a gale outside. And then all of a sudden I heard this creak and this snap. And moments later, a gazebo came crashing into my bed compartment. Let me tell you, there's no quicker way of waking up and getting out of bed in the morning than being hit by a gazebo. Tabernacle means dwelling. It means sanctuary. It means place where you live. And, and the tabernacle is this kingly tent that Yahweh, whose desire it was to take up residency with his people, he wants to live in the midst of his people. He doesn't want to be far away. He doesn't want to be excluded. He doesn't want to be on the outside. But he wants to live in the center of his people. So Exodus 25, I'll read the first eight verses. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. This wasn't a compulsion. This wasn't one of those, this is something you have to do. But this is an opportunity for God's people to demonstrate their worship to him. He says, these offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, um, and another type of durable leather. We'll get to that in a minute because that one is really fun. Uh, Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. We'll talk about ephods another time, I think. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle 
and its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. So if my volunteers want to get ready in the back of the room, we're going we're gonna to build our own tabernacle, or we're going to try and illustrate a few aspects of tabernacle. Ideally, I'd like four volunteers, um, but we'll, we'll take what we've got. How many of you, are, how many of you love a list? Yes. List people, loud and proud, let's see you here. How, you, you're kind of the, uh, the follow the instructions on the IKEA furniture kind of people. Yeah, the kind of people who... Um, Actually, read the ingredients when they're making something. When they're making food, follow the ingredients. If you've not, if you've not got cumin, nothing's gonna nothing's gonna go in its place. We just have to abandon the meal and make something else. You people, I think you reflect something of the character and the the nature of God, and this is a good thing. There's something of God's image upon you, in how God is precise in His creation. In that God loves detail. If you've ever studied any type of, of science, if you've ever studied anything, in fact, you know the world around us is filled with detail. The complexity and beauty speak to God's heart. And what I find fascinating about this passage are the very specific requirements. So guys at the back, very specific requirements coming your way in just a second. The chapters that actually describe this bit uh, the, the materials, the dimensions, the ornaments, the construction requirements. Chapter 25 to 31, we're not going to do all of it. We're going to cover it all, but we're not going to read it. Uh, because the problem is, I think the Bible has a habit of, of saying important things more than once. Because what you get a few chapters later, they describe the actual building process. And that takes us from chapter 35 to 40, in which not only have we got a long description of what they used to build it, we then get a long description of them using those things to build it. And this is so complex and, 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 dare I say, repetitive that when the uh, translators of the Old Testament into Greek many, many years later, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they decided just to skim this bit down for the sake of brevity. They were like, okay, you get it in the first bit, we're just going to condense it and move on. So you'll be excused from thinking it's okay to fly by. But what we would have, you'd have this big courtyard, big barriered courtyard. In fact, I've got a couple of pictures. We'll Bounce back and, to, back and forth some of these. Um, there we go. So that's a, that's a replica. That's not the actual one. Photographs back in time. You can see the little electrical transponder just on the outside. Let's jump to the next one. This is an idea. We're going we're to do something a little bit like this. There were these four layers of fabric that would go on the outside. In fact, let's start with that. So if you want to get the first layer of fabric, the first thing that's described is the innermost layer. It was to be blue and purple and scarlet, and it was embroidered with cherubim. You had these great angelic figures woven into the fabric of the inner layer. So that if you were inside the tabernacle, what you would see is this, this wash of color, bright color, and these incredible cherubim, these angelic beings. I've not got a, a crocheted blanket of cherubim, so you're going to have to settle for this one. But it was the closest to blue, scarlet, and purple that I could get. And so if you want to get one person on each corner, we're going to stretch it out. Otherwise, we could stick one person underneath all four blankets and they could get particularly warm. But the first layer was this, uh, this, colored, um, this colored layer with all these bright, wonderful colors. And then on top of that layer then, you had this durable goatskin layer. That's the, the brownie one. You're jumping ahead. Brownie kind of, I don't know, whatever color goats are in the, 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 the Middle East, I don't know. I don't know if they were particular about which goats they could use and couldn't use, whether there needed to be uniformity in the color. 
we can go and look at the detail later if you'd like. But then there was this durable layer of goat skin that would go over uh, the ornate uh, colored layer that you would see from the inside. And then on top of that one, then, you had a, a layer of ram skin that had been dyed red. So this kind of leathery red layer that you'd have on top of that. I wonder if the first one was to make the inside of it. You've got this beautiful kind of patterned and... I do, I do wonder how complicated putting it... I once had a job in which uh, all I had to do was put tents up in the morning, sit in a tent all day, and then take tents down in the evening. And I had this job all summer. They wouldn't leave the tents up for security reasons. So we just put tents up, put about 20 or 30 tents up in the morning, sat there, hoping someone would buy them, and then took them all, that, all down uh, at the end of the day. And that went on for an entire summer. So I got quite good at putting tents up and tents down. Uh, and then finally, the last layer is a funny one. Most translations, I'd encourage you to look up your translations to see what it was. It talks about this fine leather. The reason they call it fine leather is because they don't know how to translate the word. If you've got a particularly old translation uh, or a, uh, a particularly literal translation of the Bible, or one with footnotes, uh, you may see porpoise skin. I think that is what the, uh, the, the King James or the authorized version uh, used to refer it to. I don't know how easy porpoise are to catch or to skin, or to, to tan the leather and to turn it into an... Some translations put sea cow, uh, which I think is a, like a manatee. Uh, I think a dugon, a manatee, is, is like a, a sea cow. Again, don't know how easy they are to catch. Uh, and so some translations just abandon the exercise altogether and say, well, it was some kind of fine, durable leather. So on the outside of the tabernacle, it was shielded from the elements, even on a windy day like this. But if you want to jump to the next slide, so we've got the multiple layers going over the top of there. There's a little idea of what it would look like with these multiple layers on top of each other. Inside you see the gold and the color present. Uh, we're going to go to the next one as well. We're going to do the last bits of our construction before we dismiss our priests at the back of the room. Uh, what you see here, this is the kind of the construction of the whole thing. So you've got this uh, perimeter on the outside. <coughs> and the first thing that you would come across when you would enter the tabernacle would be this altar. And this is where the burnt offerings would go. So I've got a small metal tin. That's what we want to start with. And, and on the burnt altar would be the sacrifices, the offerings. This is where the priests... So don't go too close. You're on right by the entrance. There we go. Uh, I've got some, some beef jerky representing the, uh, the sacrifices, the offerings. You don't have to open it up. I'm going to eat it later. So, let's, so that would go there. That would be a, 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 a burnt offering to God. It would be a, a symbolism of the, the, the sin, the sacrifice that was required to bring the purity to God's people. That was offered continually in the tabernacle on behalf of the people. You then get to what is called the, the laver, maybe. I think that's where we get our English word lavatory. It's a big basin. This is a big bronze basin. I think I've got a little plastic popping basin. That would then be filled with water. So that goes a step, a step beyond then. Let's not fill it with water because it will get up all over the floor. This would be used for purification, so the priests would not be allowed to enter the holy place uh, without washing first. Sacrificing is um, a job with a lot of blood involved in it. And the priests were not, and the symbolism of this is significant. We can't dwell on it too long because I've already spent way more time on this than I thought I was going to. But they, they had to have clean hands and clean feet as they entered the presence of God. Again, the symbolism there is significant. 
And once they entered the holy place, they, they parted the, the curtains, they entered into that holy place. The idea of, of breaking into the heavenly realm. There were three items of furniture. There was a golden candlestick, a golden lampstand. I have a golden torch. No, 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 that's, that's my altar of incense. You're jumping ahead. I know it's confusing. Try to keep up. So there would be the seven um, pronged lampstand. Again, think about the imagery in the book of Revelation when it talks about these seven lamps and all this kind of stuff. So much of understanding the tabernacle unpacks the rest of the Bible. Within the temple itself, there would be this lampstand giving light uh, to the rest of the room, highlighting the, the beautiful colors, the ornate patterns, and the gold within that room. There was a table of bread. It's in tin foil. That's the one. <laughs> it was no tin foil in the tabernacle, I promise you. And this, this uh, we'll get to this in a minute because the symbol of this is amazing, but we'll get to there. There's, there's a table, and bread was consumed on a daily basis by the priests in the tabernacle. It was baked and placed freshly in there each day. And then right before, some of them think it was right in front of the curtain of the most holy place, was the altar of incense. I've got a scented candle. As our tabernacle collapsed, that's fair. I think the illustration is starting to collapse as well. <laughs> so the, the incense uh, was burnt. There was, there was almost like this secret ingredient. It wasn't allowed to be replicated or used anywhere else. But this, this holy fragrance dedicated for the purpose of the temple was burnt there, symbolizing prayers and worship that were offered in the morning and the evening to God. And then beyond that, and what you get right at the back, it was a perfect cube, 10 cubits by 10 cubits, 10, foot, 10 cubits high, 10 cubits wide, 10 cubits deep, this perfect golden box where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. All right, I'm going to, kids, you can, I don't know how they took the tabernacle down, we're just going to drop it and you guys can find your tables at the back of the room, take a tabernacle blanket with you if you want, wrap yourself up in porpoise skin. Um, or something like that. <laughs> but the idea was the tabernacle was meant to represent the presence of God. It was meant to be a small location where heaven was reflected on earth. Let me ask you, what do you think when you think about heaven? What are the images that come to mind? So much of our society is thought, well, heaven is like clouds and people are playing harps, maybe tiny babies with wings. And for some reason, this has got into the, kind of the, 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 the popular understanding of what we think of when we think of heaven. But if the tabernacle was meant to represent heaven, it was gold, there was water, there was color, and most importantly, I think, there was food. That if you want a complete image of heaven, if that is what the tabernacle was meant to, meant to represent, there was colour, there was vibrancy, it was, it was a feast for the senses, and food was present as well. So much of the opening chapters of Revelation, we see the images of the tabernacle played out. That the, the meaning of so much in the Bible is opened up and we understand God's presence in the heavenly realm in this way. And so this tent was meant to be this, this tiny, portable Eden, a place where God's presence lived with his people. It was this tiny piece of heaven on earth. And the most important thing, it was movable. It wasn't fixed in one location. It was meant to go with the people. 
The problem is when they established the temple, they lost something of this idea. And the temple that was built many, many years later was built completely on the pattern of the tabernacle. But it did lose this idea that God's desire was to move with his people. He wasn't fixed in one location. That It wasn't so much that people came to God, but God went with them. And it's easy for us to fall into the same habit that we think about church. We go to church. That God lives in this building, that he's stuck in one position, and we go to find him. But the better understanding is that God's desire is that he go with us. That God is mobile and moving and active and working. And that the purpose of the tabernacle was God's dwelling place on earth. Now there was the challenge involved in this. There was a problem to be resolved. That The purpose of the tabernacle was not only God wanting to be with his people, but understanding that their sin and their moral brokenness kept them from him. So the tabernacle was meant to be this go-between between God's desire to be with his people and the sin and the brokenness of humanity. So we get this symbolism of Eden. When we think about the symbolism in the tabernacle, that we have Eden here, God's presence. There's the provision, there's the color. I think the only mention of onyx in the Bible, you get one in the opening chapters of Genesis, and you get one referring to some of the precious gemstones that were allowed to be used in the construction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle faced east. The reason is symbolically when Adam and Eve were, were told to leave Eden, they were sent out of the garden and they, they settled east of Eden, that it faced to the east with that, that mental picture of moving towards God's presence. Seven times in its construction you have these God said statements. Just like the seven days of creation when God speaks and creates, the, the imagery here is very intentional. Whereas Eden had the tree of life, the tabernacle had this, this tree-like lampstand, flower-like cups and buds and blossoms. It was essentially a tree with candles on it. And when the priest looked towards the curtain, barring the entrance to the most holy place, they would see the cherubim embroidered on it, staring back at them, just as the cherubim guarded the path back to Eden in Genesis 3. The most holy place was guarded by these cherubim. The idea that Eden had, had reappeared on earth here, but there was still blockage to get back there. There were still challenges in entering that place. And the reality was is that only one person, the high priest, would enter the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. I often wondered when they had the temple and they weren't kind of deconstructing it and reconstructing it, did he go there and do a bit of spring cleaning? Like, how did, how did you keep a room that you own it enter once, whereas if you only go in once a year, it can't get that dirty. But I don't know. And what I want us to think about as we, as we look at this, there's so much of the symbolism here that we could spend ages and ages going to. But I want to think about, about four things. Uh, I want to think about the tabernacle as a plan for worship and salvation. As they would enter the tent, the first thing that it would come through would be the, the altar. And there's a, there's a pattern for our worship here. As we, as we come before God, we recognize the sacrifice that Jesus has made. 
that we don't go through all the, the rituals and you know, we could spend time in, in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy after we've done Exodus if, if you're desperate to do that. And there's a lot of ritual, there's a lot of sacrifice, there's a lot of things that the people have got to go through in order to come before the presence of God. And yet we understand that, that what brings us into God's presence, the one thing that brings us into the presence of God is the sacrifice of Jesus. Once you get past the altar for sacrifice, there's this great bronze structure filled with water, the bronze laver. And it's, there's symbolism of, of, of baptism and of, of cleansing and of going through the water, that cleansing that we receive from, God's, from Christ's sacrifice for us, allowing us to enter the heavenly realm as we pass through the curtain and enter into the presence and the family of God. And in that presence, you find the bread and the lamp and the incense representing the provision of God, the light of God, and the joy of God's presence, all leading towards the most holy place where God dwells, separated by this great curtain, only entered once a year by one man on behalf of all the people. So when we think about Easter, when we think about Good Friday, when we think about the, tur- the curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom, it gives us something of an understanding of the symbolism here. It's that place that was referred to as the most holy place. This was meant to be the most sacred space on earth, so holy that, that the, all these rituals had to be obeyed. And even then, only one person could enter into God's presence was ripped from the top to the bottom because all of this, all of this uh, process, this ritual, uh, these religious acts, these rites, these sacrifices, all of this was now complete in Jesus, that the presence of God was available to all. And the tabernacle beautifully foreshadows the work of Jesus in salvation. That God's blueprint for the tabernacle is his blueprint for worship, his blueprint for salvation. The next one is that the, the tabernacle was a picture of something greater. One of the things we talk about at, at Cap City, one of our, our core beliefs, as it were, is that God is motivated by relationship. And, and we believe this is the, at the heart of the Christian message. This isn't something that is unique to us or that we've made up or that we kind of elevate or above other things. But we believe that part of our message is that God desires to know you and to be known by you. And we see it in the story of the tabernacle. God's desire is to dwell with his people, to be in their midst. He wants to be with them. The right, the, the right at the start, when God makes this covenant with the people, his desire is to be with them. God's desire right now is relationship with us, to know us, to be known by us. And ultimately, this points forward to something much greater. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here, as John's Gospel begins to talk about Jesus' incarnation, Jesus coming from heaven to earth, he uses this word, He made His dwelling among us. And it's interesting because he intentionally selects a word in Greek that was the same one used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the tabernacle. You could almost say the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. 
the eternal Word of God, came to earth and set up His tent, built His home with us in our mess and our stress and our sin. He doesn't run away from our problems. He doesn't keep His distance from our pain, but He moves into the neighborhood because His desire is relationship. The tabernacle was the presence of God in the midst of His people. And Jesus is God, the fullness of his presence in the midst of his people. Not limited by ritual, not hidden in a back room or veiled away, only accessed by a single person, but made available to all. That so much of the tabernacle is is pointing us towards our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. But more than that, the the tabernacle, and I forgot my P for this one. I could have my next slide. The tabernacle is a pattern for Christian life. And you might think, what on earth could a 3,000-year-old tent tell you about how to live the Christian life? And I'd say that's a great question. I can remember once leaving a tent in a basement for 10 years. And a 10-year-old tent, I didn't want anything. It, it, It was pungent, for sure. I don't think we'd aired it out properly when we put it away. And so a 3,000-year-old tent, that is going to have some interesting smells. But what if I told you that the tabernacle is now reflected most clearly in you? You might think, Luke, that sounds crazy, but hear me out. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, I think I've got this verse up. It says, do you know that you yourselves are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are the temple. Paul repeats this elsewhere in in Ephesians 2.22. It says, also, uh, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I need to very, very quickly do uh, some, some English language with you just because there's a limit to English. We don't really have a third-person plural in English. Um, when we say you, we usually refer to one person. But the challenge is most other languages have a way of referring to you in the third person. And I think the closest in, in English is the slightly American-sounding y'all. You heard that one as in you all contraction. The, the idea, so when we, when we say you, sometimes we mean you, Sammy. And sometimes when we say you, I mean you lot out there. And the challenge is, in English, it's exactly the same word. So when we read it in the Bible, we sometimes have this reading in which you think, well, it's just talking about me and I am this thing. And so often, especially in passages in the New Testament, when, it's, when it talks about you, it is talking about the church. That he's not saying, and I think that the translators here do a good job of attempting to say what it says, you together are that temple. There's, a, there's an attempt to say it's, it's not individually, exclusively you, but you together as the people of God are that dwelling place. You are where God's spirit and presence longs to live. That we as the church are to be God's presence. That we as the church are responsible for carrying the spirit of God wherever we go. That this isn't something that we carry and cultivate alone, but something that belongs to us together. 
What I find so compelling in the, the tabernacle picture, more so than with the temple, is that they would put it down and carry it with them. And there's this wonderful image as we, we gather together as the church, that, that our praise and our worship matters, our time together of fellowship is important, that as we do that, we are God's people together. And as we leave, it's as if we put the tent down and bring it with us. That when we pack the stuff away at church, we could have put it in a box and lock it in a cupboard, and that's it. It stays here until next week. The reality is what we're to do in our, in our fellowship, in our time together, in our worship, is effectively we pack down the presence of God and we take it with us. That as the tabernacle was taken into its pieces, it would be carried at the center of God's people as they were on the move. that we are to reflect God. We're to, to, to reflect his values and his character to the world around us. And what is so important for us to understand is this, this is not just as us as Cap City. But I think often it's important to visualize churches this very morning meeting together to exalt the name of Jesus. Regardless of our, our differences of, of opinion or theology or, or worship style, the reality is we are united to glorify Jesus. <coughs> that across the earth this very moment, gathering cathedrals, in historic buildings, in modern halls, in schools and community centers, in homes and in secret, that is the tabernacle of God constructed right now. The presence of God mobile and active on earth, holy and set apart that that is what we carry with us wherever we go. And it's not for any old purpose, but for a mission. That you were, you were not made to binge watch TV. You're not made for a distracted, disjointed life. You weren't made for, for petty distractions and simple things. You were made for holiness. You are made to reflect and re represent the image of God to the world around you. You are meant to carry his presence into the darkness around you. That when we join together, we aren't here for us. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here just to pass the time, but to reflect his glory, to pick up his presence and carry it with us. That, that if, we want a, if we want a model or an image for what we do when we are gathered, we soak ourselves in the presence of God and we carry it away with us. We don't leave it here. The church is not the experience where we kind of do the God stuff and then off we go to live a normal life. What we do here is soak up as much of God's presence and God's spirit through worship, through his word, through our fellowship and encouragement with one another. And we take it into the places that God has ordained and called us to be. My final point is this, is that the tabernacle is a petition for our priestly calling. That the priests were to serve in the tabernacle. And you see a whole host of, of very detailed instructions. Again, God loves the detail here uh, about who were to be priests. It was only the Levites, only one of the 12 tribes that would have that responsibility. And from amongst them, there was a, a very specific group of people that could and could not serve as priests in the temple. But the responsibility of priests was to represent the people before God and to represent God before the people. 
that their actions were not just to count for themselves, but to count for the entire nation. And that the way they operated in front of the nation was to reflect God to them. Church, when we carry the presence of God, it is never just you. You are never alone. You are never just what you can bring to a situation. When we carry the presence of God with us, wherever we go, we bring the power and the authority and the anointing and the miracles of God into the places that we occupy. It says in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That here Peter writes into the church says that, that as the church, you are now that priesthood. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are set apart as God's possession for this purpose. You are to represent God to the rest of the world. And more incredibly, you are to represent the world to God. That priestly intercession. That we stand in the presence of God, not just for ourselves, not just for our church, but the world around us. When you, when you think about, if you're anything like me, sometimes I struggle with what to pray for. Like I do, I do my, my, my kind of, uh, my children's nighttime prayers to God. You know, I say, thank you God for this, and please God fix that, and God help me out with that. Or, you know, I, I go through my list with God, and you know, it's, it's good, and I feel better, and I, I know that God, I know God cares, and God acts off those prayers. But ultimately, if we are to understand our prayers in this priestly manner, Church, we're meant to represent the world around us to God. That we stand in that gap between the, the world and its mess and a glorious loving Father. That we stand and intercede in that space. That we have that calling to operate in that place. That we are to bring the presence of God from heaven to earth. Just as the tabernacle was meant to represent. That we take God's presence Everywhere we go, we bring heaven to earth. We live as good news. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.